And in that box were two little hamsters. This was our introduction to pet ownership. And she along came with a cage, and so my sister and I named our two hamsters. That's not actually them. But uh, one was called Lassie. That was mine. And uh, my sister's was called Spike. But one day, Spike wasn't, alive, um, wasn't active as normal. He wasn't running in his wheel. He wasn't chewing on the sides of the cage. And so we thought, OK, let's check and see what's going on. So we thought, maybe if we open the cage, that would rattle him awake, and we could see him as normal. But still, he didn't move. I reached in, thinking, OK, maybe this will stir him. Eventually, I touched his body, and it was stiff and cold. I was like, hmm, this isn't normal. So I asked my dad to come over, and he said, well, let's pray for him. And so we took him out. We began rubbing him and praying for him. And eventually, he came back to life. At that moment, I realized something. I was like, I didn't know that hamsters hibernated. Just kidding. <laughs> Eventually, you know, he, he came back, and, uh, but we found out that he was sick, and he eventually passed away much earlier than Lassie did. So we were very sad. Death is a part of Life. Death can steal our joy. Death can confront our insecurities and reveal our hopes. In today's passage that we just heard Jesse read, we heard how grief was at work surrounding the death and eventual resurrection of Lazarus. This is an amazing story, and it's unique to John's gospel amongst the other gospel accounts. Some scholars believe that while the other gospel accounts were written much earlier than John's, the fact that John wrote his gospel much later allowed the family to grieve appropriately, and so he could tell the story well. And this is a gift for us. In this account, John gives one of the clearest examples of how our future life, our future life in Christ, invades our present life now. How timely it is that we are in the middle of this future life series when we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to look at this passage in three acts. In the questioning, in our grieving, but also in our hoping. In our questioning, in our grieving, and in our hoping. You know, Julie and I have passed through parenting toddlers in our home more than a few times now. Besides Evan and Ashley, of course, we've also had three foster boys pass through our home and join our home over the past years. And with any toddler, one of the developmental milestones that starts off as cute but soon tests the parent's patience is the learning of the question, why? <laughs> why, mommy? Why, daddy? The why question is the most demanding question as it speaks to purpose and meaning, which we often don't know when a toddler asks. We can handle the what, right? What time is it? That's easy. We can handle the where. Where are we now, mom? And maybe even the how. How do I tie my shoelace, dad? Except how much longer, because every parent hates that. How much longer do we get there? But the why question is primeval. It's the question behind the serpent's question in, to Adam and Eve in the garden when he said, did God really say the serpent was asking them, why do you think God forbids you to eat from that tree? Casting doubt on God's goodness. 
When things happen or when things don't happen in our lives, the why question always poses the biggest challenge. When an unexpected or painful circumstance arrives, especially for those we love, questioning is always part of the process. Why? Why him? Why her? What did she do to deserve this? We see the why question revealed in this story too, maybe not directly though. For the disciples, in verse 8, the disciples say to Jesus when he tells them that he's planning to go into Jerusalem, he says, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? Why would you want to do something like that? We ask why when God's plan doesn't seem to make sense to us. Martha does the same thing in verse 21 and 22. She says, when she meets Jesus, she goes, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Behind that question, she's saying, why weren't you there for us? We ask why, and God doesn't seem to be present in our lives. Mary, too. Mary comes to Jesus with the exact same statement as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's another why question. Why didn't you come earlier, Jesus? We ask why, and God's timing doesn't seem to meet our expectations. Finally, we see another why question with the crowds in verse 37. When they say, could, he not, uh, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why couldn't God do anything about this? If this man is really God, we ask why when it seems like God doesn't care. John is a master storyteller here. And he's bringing all hearers, including you and I, into the story. After all, haven't we all asked these kinds of questions at some point in our lives? And maybe you're here asking those questions today. They're hard, but they're very real questions. If you're a skeptic and you're here today or listening, maybe you recognize the Apostle John has may, may have included your questions in this passage. These questions form the foundational arguments against the existence of an all-powerful God. Why would a good God allow people to suffer like this? Why would it seem that he would delay in relieving the suffering of, their friend, of his friends and of Lazarus? Fortunately, these questions are not left completely unanswered for us, as we'll see shortly. Jesus' two questions as well in this passage. His first question he asks is a rhetorical one, with the heat turned up. When the disciples ask him, you're going to go back to Jerusalem? Why? He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Zing. Ouch. But when we get to Jesus' other questions, these questions actually reveal the heart and character of God. In verse 34, he says, where have you laid him? When he sees their grief. We hear the deep compassion and care of those who are, for those who are hurting the most. Their questions, their challenges do not turn him off from meeting them and joining them. In verse 40, Jesus says to her, to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Another question. He said something similar to the people questioning the blind man that he healed in John chapter 9, two chapters earlier. He said earlier in this chapter, in verse 4, 
when Jesus first heard about Lazarus' critical illness. Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son might be glorified through it. Early in the chapter, we can see that Jesus knew, he knew that Lazarus was going to die. He was told that Lazarus was sick, but he knew that Lazarus was going to die, yet he delayed in responding. He delayed in going to see his family, this family that he loved. The answer is why? The answer to the why question is the glory of God. God does everything so that his character of love, of goodness, of justice, of power, and wisdom might be displayed. Now, his activity, and sometimes lack of activity, serves, serves the purpose to maximally display his glory, his character in the world. And this particular story of Lazarus' resurrection is a foreshadowing of the most magnificent display of God's glory that Je when Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the grave just a week later from this event. You know, as we attempt to make sense of the circumstances of our lives, the questions can be a way for us to build the wall between the living God and ourselves. Or they can be a way for us to draw closer to God and realize his wisdom and grandeur of his character, if we're willing to give him a chance. When our questions are used as barriers and defense mechanisms, in some ways we believe that we know better than God does. We've put him on the hot seat and deemed him unworthy of the position of his namesake. At the same time, we've decided for ourselves that who's going to play God over our lives. But for those who have honest questions that draw us closer to God, Jesus meets us in those places as we see in this passage. He doesn't always answer our questions the way we expect, but he does meet us if we're open to him. Anytime we lose a loved one, whether they've been with us for our entire lives or maybe they've been with us for all too short of a time. Grieving is a real and difficult process. But we don't have to lose a loved one to grieve. Anytime there is significant change, there is loss. Maybe it's a loss of a relationship. Maybe it's a change of a job, a move to a new city. The process of grieving unfolds. It may not always show up as tears and weeping, but the emotion is just as real. Grief is present. Our family has been in D.C. now for about seven months. We have new friends and this wonderful church family here. We've moved into a, new, a home and a neighborhood new to us. Our kids have gone to, settled into new school routines and new friends. And Julia recently started a new job. In the grand scheme of things, it's been quite a short while, but we've experienced a lot of change in the past year. We are, of course, very glad to be here. We see God's hand and his blessing in bringing us together. But I got to admit, there's times when I think of Vancouver, and I miss it. This week, I was volunteering with Evan's class at the Lamb Center in Falls Church. It's a ministry to the homeless. And I met another volunteer there who, as we chatted, found out that she's moving to Vancouver this summer because her husband works with the State Department and he got posted there. And as I began sharing about Vancouver, I was reminiscing and I realized I really missed Vancouver. I missed our friends and family. I missed our home of 18 years with a big backyard and a trampoline in the back that you can jump off the roof 
to land on it. I miss, actually, but I don't miss doing the yard work in that yard. I miss the Asian food. I miss my cycling buddies that I can text the night before and say, hey, you want to ride tomorrow morning? And then we can go. Grief is present. And when I catch myself experiencing this, I'm tempted to rush through those emotions. But I've got to tell myself that it's okay. It's okay to miss my home of many years. And it's okay to grieve the loss and change. Our culture isn't really great at handling grief and sorrow. We feel like we've got to always have it together. Grief can be viewed as weakness. We want to fix people's problems and get them out of their funk because, to be honest with you, we don't actually know what to do with it. We're uncomfortable with what we perceive as negative emotions. We respond with polite smiles and caring, saying sometimes a little shallow when we say, hey, look on the bright side. Or, hey, at least, at least you didn't lose this. And the one I hate the most, Christians are often, well, are known to say when they go, let go, let God. I get it. It looks good as a social media pity post. But besides being grammatically incorrect because it doesn't have a predicate, (laughs) bumper, sticker, Hallmark card responses. Don't give permission always for a person to journey through that emotion of grief. And when we do that, it's really about us in our discomfort with their grief rather than caring and loving that person. In this story, Jesus does none of that. When he hears news of Lazarus' sickness, he delays his departure for two days because, we're told, of his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's not how we expect to be loved. But isn't a true and lasting love often a little surprising to us? When grief is present, we find that so is Jesus. You have Martha, verses 20 to 28. She's a woman of action. When she hears that Jesus is approaching, she leaves her home and runs to Jesus outside the village. She's trying to make sense of everything in her conversation with Jesus. If you were here, he wouldn't have died, but I trust you. She's verbally processing her grief before the master. Yet Jesus meets her where she's at. She's looking for assurance and explanation, and so he gives it to her, and he says, your brother will rise again. But she mistakes that explanation and goes on to theologize about the end times. But Jesus isn't talking about that rising. He's talking about something much more immediate, inviting her to believe. And she cracks me up. Because when she acknowledges, she goes, yes, yes, of course, Lord, I trust you. I know that you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And then she turns around and runs back to find Mary. She tells Mary, that the teacher is calling for you. In her own grief, she's trying to help her sister's grief by telling Mary that Jesus is calling for her. Now, if you read the story carefully, we're not told that Jesus actually asks for Mary, although he certainly probably could have. But maybe this is part of Martha's character to explain and problem-solve and take action as ways to deal with her own grief. Do you know anyone like that? I certainly do. Yet Jesus meets her with compassion and patience. We've seen glimpses of her personality before because Luke records Jesus visiting their home in Luke chapter 10. She's the one busy in the kitchen doing all the uh, hospitality work for her house guest. And she gets upset that Mary is sitting 
at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach. And we see a little bit of that here in Mary. In verses 28 to 35, Mary's doing the same thing. In her grief, while Martha runs out to meet Jesus, Mary is seated at home with, while her sister is off meeting Jesus. Maybe she's at home in her PJs, doing some ice cream you know, therapy, cuddled up in her bedroom, hugging her favorite pillow, and scrolling through all the photos of, of Lazarus. But Jesus doesn't ignore her in how she grieves. When Mary gets up and finds Jesus in the same place that he met Martha earlier, she falls at his feet again. And she says the same thing as Martha. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She comes with the same question but processes it much differently. Martha is a verbal processor and explainer, whereas Mary collapses at, her, at his feet and simply weeps. What's Jesus' response to her? John tells us that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He empathizes. He feels what she feels. He weeps together with her. 17th century theologian Matthew Henry writes, The sickness of those we love is our affliction. The more friends we have, the more frequently we are thus afflicted by sympathy. And dearer they are, the more grievous it is. The multiplying of our comforts is but the multiplying of our cares and crosses. We see Jesus do that here for his friend Mary. Little do Mary and Martha know that Jesus isn't only empathizing with them. He's not only feeling the burden of their cares and crosses, but on the cross, he's going to bear in just one week's time all of the burdens of the world. In this scene, we see the compassion and love of God who meets each person in their grief in ways that they can understand. And he knows each one of us well enough to meet us where we're at. But even more, he meets the grief and the burden of the entire world in our broken relationship with the living God. And he bears that for us on the cross. For those of us who find ourselves in moments of grief, don't rush through those moments. Acknowledge them. Bring them before the one person in the world, in the universe, who knows what to do with them. And know that the living God he will come alongside you and meet you there. And where you can, invite trusted friends along as well. That's one of the greatest gifts that we can offer to others who are grieving a loss or a significant change. It's the ability to sit with them in their grief. Some of our friends, some of us, need explanations like Martha. But many people just need someone to cry together with them, to carry the burden together with them. As Jesus models for us, enter into the sorrow of others to let them know that they are not alone. Where grief is present, we can be present in their grief. The story gives us license to question and to grieve. The story gives us assurance that our questioning and grieving do not spurn the attention of the living God, but in fact draw him close to us. King David writes these words of assurance in Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted 
and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The living God hears our questions as he's present in our grief, but also offers us hope. Unlike a good friend, Jesus not only offers empathy, but he is unique in the kind of hope that he offers. In this narrative, John presents the final sign of Jesus as Messiah in this gospel before he goes to the cross. Jesus has given us different signs. Uh, John has given us different signs of Jesus up to this point in his gospel, and we've covered them over the past few weeks. He's, He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He's the light of life. And now we hear the assertion that Jesus is the giver of life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. When Jesus says this, Martha mistakenly thinks Jesus is referring to this ultimate resurrection in the end. But Jesus is talking about something much more immediate. Yes, to Martha, he's talking about Lazarus' physical resurrection in a few moments. But to those listening, including us here in the pews or online, he's talking about a kind of resurrection that we experience now. Read his response carefully in verse 26. He says, And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The Greek renders this first part of the phrase literally as kai, which is and, pas, hall, which is whoever, any person, every person, zone is living and, or when, is believing, the person who believes, into me. Whoever lives, it's an active, present participle, which implies that life promised by Jesus is experienced now and continually, not just in the future. Our future resurrection may be much more glorious and tangible, but between now and then, we can experience the resurrection life promised by Jesus now. The power that death holds over us because of sin is dead when we put our trust in Jesus. Now, we may experience loss and death in this life, but it does not hold ultimate sway. It does not hold ultimate sway over us or over eternity and in this life now. Grief may be present, but death is dead. This is the incredible promise of Jesus. The future life of resurrection is experienced now when we put our hope in Christ. How do we experience this hope? Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Believe in me implies personal trust in Christ. The preposition translated in is ice in Greek. It's striking, for ice ordinarily means into. It's a giving into the sense of genuine faith in Christ. It's a giving in to this life and rest that he promises. It's giving in to this union with him. The Apostle John is making clear in chapter 11 and 12 that the way to experience this life is through believing. To put the weight of your life upon Jesus. If you look at all the hits, that's what this graph is. I'm a nerd, so I like graphs. Right? You see all the hits of the word believe, and in 11 and 12, that's the climax of it in its use in the Gospel of John. The only way to experience this hope in Christ of our future resurrected life invading our present life now and joys and griefs and all is simply by believing in Jesus. 
A few weeks ago, Evan asked if we could begin rock climbing together. I've been trying to find an activity for us to do together that doesn't involve a screen. And so when he asked that, I immediately jumped on it and signed us up for an orientation class to learn so how we can climb and support each other with ropes safely. So the very first time that we did it alone after, without the instructor, I climbed to the top. I was the climber, and he was the guy on the bottom supporting with the ropes called the belayer. And I get to the top, and I, you, you say take, which means take all the slack out because I'm going to put my weight on the rope. And I looked down, and I said, take, and he goes, gotcha. He said gotcha, but I didn't believe it. So I quickly, in two seconds, said, okay, wait, did I tie everything right? What am I going to grab onto if the rope breaks? And what will I break if I fall, land on this padded floor on the bottom? That was where the rubber meets the road. Did I really trust my 14-year-old son to not drop me from 35 feet in the air? But I had to. I had to put my life fully in his hands. I had to let go of the wall, sit back in my harness, and found that he held me. To believe in Jesus and experience his resurrection life now is to let go of our handholds that we see and to put our weight fully on his promises, knowing that he will hold us fast. And life brings us highs and lows. We can question in those times. We can grieve. But we can hope with deep assurance because of what he has done for us. And that assurance of eternal life isn't just at the end. It pierces our present now so we can taste and see the goodness of God's glory in our lives now. For those of us who have come to know and hope in this life of Christ, I want to encourage you to be thankful and to remind yourself and say, do I really believe this in those highs and in those lows do i really believe this promise that you have made to me jesus but i also want to encourage you to think of people around you maybe think of three people i'll pray in a few moments and ask the holy spirit to bring people to your attention people who are going through grief maybe it's not the loss of a loved one but maybe it is maybe it's the change maybe it's transition how can you Enter into their grief. Bear Christ's love and patience and kindness to them. And bring his hope that is only found in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for knowing how each of us responds to challenges in our lives, to loss. Thank you that you come with compassion and kindness and patience and most of all with love. We're grateful to you. Help us to believe when we doubt. And I pray for those of us who have come to know this joy and hope in you, that you would bring three people to mind in our lives, maybe more, maybe less. Their names would come to our minds. That you would show us how we can bear Christ's presence to them. 
how we can be present with them in their grief and sorrow. We don't have to solve everything, but we can tell them and be kindness, your kindness and graciousness to them. As we do so, that your glory would be displayed through our lives because that's what we're created for. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.